Welcome back to the VIP Backroom Lounge, or the Backroom VIP Lounge, depending on if you caught me on my stream last night. Yes, ladies and germs, this is two weeks in a row we've put out a podcast. Wow, the stars must have aligned, and the barman must have given you a sultry wink, you lucky devils. In this week's episode, I want to talk about playing games, namely challenges and difficulty making games and buying games sort of the three holy trinity of the sort of metaverse of being a gamer as a whole oh god i hate saying that term it's so cringe <laughs> i'm a gamer yeah anyway um off to a cracking start our first part though playing games right and yeah, I've been mulling over the notions of difficulty in games for a while now. Now, this was a hot topic a few years ago, so naturally we're covering it now because hot topics tend to get repetitive around the time they're a hot topic. And it was a hot topic because of Dark Souls and other games bringing the idea of... it was I think it was around Sekiro or something. Uh, there was a rumor that it was going to have a difficulty setting and that, and that kind of pissed people off. So we're going to have a little unpacking of that. Now first, you have to understand that, like, what is the point of uh, multiple difficulty settings within games? Now this is, this is the angle that all the videos and sort of articles and essays I've looked at sort of approached it. And I don't think it's a very interesting angle. I think before you get to that point, you have to talk about what is a good challenge and a bad challenge within a game. And I think you can break it down into two, two very generic formats. There is either a, a sort of objective difficulty and there is a subjective difficulty to a game. Now what I mean by that is well, there's good difficulty and bad difficulty. Let's get into it. There's objective difficulty is when a game changes its uh, changes its environment, its enemy, and its challenges in a way that is objectively difficult, whether or not you are physically skilled at playing the game, or if you're a complete beginner to the game. It doesn't matter. Uh, the game will be difficult upon selecting this higher difficulty or this level of difficulty. And you will struggle against it whether you develop skills or not. Objectively difficult things are like the, you know, the ridiculous game modes and like uh, difficulty settings for games like Skyrim. Popular punching bag here in the GUI backroom lounge. Um... Skyrim, though, is a fitting example, as well as a lot of other games like this, where they've only increased the difficulty by merely increasing uh, enemies' health pools and defensive resources and offensive capabilities, meaning they hit harder and they take more damage. This means, especially in a role-playing situation, that the player either has to use as many exploits to the game loop to try and overcome these enemies or simply spend more time to kill the enemies or just have a difficult time. Skyrim's a good example of why objective difficulty can be bad 
because instead of challenging the player's skills that they've built up to overcome the game's challenges um, and, and the engagement with the game as a whole, it instead is only demanding that you maximize your damage output while minimizing your damage intake, which is, yeah, a core part of the experience, but it is just one very small part of the experience. And in a game, it usually means that you're going to be exploiting a lot of, like, uh, weaknesses and difficulties, such as in Halo 1. I remember I played through the game on Legendary when I was but a youth with more time to spare than I do now. And you quickly realize that the plasma pistol and the needler are the greatest weapons in the game. Surely because of the pure damage output of a charged plasma shot is enough to take down uh, enemy elite shield, which then you can use the needler to home in and hit every single attack and they explode. And if they explode, they'll also do splash damage to people around them. It was just the unholy combination. It was perfect. Um, and so other other elements of the gameplay sort of fell to the side because we were desperately trying to find exploits. Now, is this objective difficulty bad in terms of can it be completely unenjoyable? I don't think so. I think the reason people include these objectively difficult settings is for people who are bored and tired of their mastery of the game and want to feel like a noob again. They want to feel like they're rediscovering the game again and having to relearn its foundations. Uh, this is great for like um, people who have genuinely mastered the game on its previous difficulties. And there is even a mod for Dark Souls that rearranges the enemies and changes their health values and all this other stuff, essentially to give people that same sense. So, objective difficulty is not great in terms of uh, a mandatory difficulty setting or one that proclaims it's the true difficulty setting, which we'll get onto that. But it is good as a completely optional, maybe post-game kind of setting. Uh, something you unlock, for example. Okay, then you've got subjective difficulty. This is difficulty that um, if I pick up the controller, brand new to the game, and someone who's played the game loads picks up the controller, we would get to very different places with the exact same level of difficulty. This is a difficulty that... It can be really, really difficult to learn, but it rewards that mastery with allowing you to just display skill and progress through it in that regard. This, I think, is probably the best form of difficulty, but again, it's not completely perfect. Mastery of the core loop, especially in regards to how it pertains to the game's sort of story and overall world feel, um, could be a really engaging way, or it could simply bounce players off. Um, trying to, for instance, Sekiro, I know plenty of people who didn't enjoy it nearly as much as Dark Souls because you were limited to the one sword and the game was heavily reliant on parrying and the parry mechanic. And if you didn't like the parry mechanic, well, the whole game is based off of it. It's built around getting good at that parry mechanic and it will never get easier. You can't just master a different way. 
So this means if there is a singular form of play that the game is expecting you to master and you're just not good at that or you don't have the interest in that particular style of playing. For example, if I play any game that has crafting, I don't craft anything. I hate crafting. It's the most fucking arbitrary, pointless thing that ever got cursed onto gaming thanks to Minecraft. And Minecraft's a masterpiece, don't get me wrong there. What I'm saying is, I don't see any reason, unless your game is built entirely around it, why I have to collect arbitrary resources to make upgrades that are also nigh on equally arbitrary. I hate crafting. But anyway, that's a whole divergent topic. That'll be next week. Crafting and why it doesn't work in 90% of games. Um, but this subjective difficulty obviously has its rewards. You get good at the game, you get physically good, and it can be incredibly rewarding experience. It's also one of the more difficult things to implement a multiple, uh, multiple difficulty setting. Because then you get to the problem of which difficulty setting is the true game. Which one is supposed to be the experience of the story I'm playing? The actual challenges that the main character is supposed to be facing. Which version of this reality is it? Is it the one where I am having to use the plasma pistol and needler to survive desperately against elites who can kill me in like three shots? Or is it a much easier version that offers a bit more variety but ultimately not as much challenge or ingenuity. Which version and trying to get multiple versions of difficulties that still subjectively allow for the development of skill over just arbitrary cheesing of higher difficulty enemies. Ah, it's hard. Therein lies the sort of golden path, the, the, the trip to Muhadib on the sands of Dune. I don't know, I've been reading a lot of Dune again recently. Go back to my Dune episode. <laughs> Dune it always comes back to Dune. It always comes back to Arrakis, Dune, Desert Planet. So in terms of difficulty, we've got subjective and objective. And then we've got the, the conundrum of multiple difficulty choices. What can we do? How can we do it? Then let's add another conundrum of accessibility. And in particular, one of the arguments that came up a few years ago was about disabled access to games and their content. And there's a quite a popular Daro Brian stand-up routine where he says games are the only form of media, the only form of entertainment that outright will not allow you to see the rest of its entertainment unless you are good enough to do so. <laughs> he posits that, can you imagine if a book ended the chapter with, all right, what were the themes of this chapter? Uh, what do you think the projection of the character's arc is going to be? No, that's wrong. Snapshot. Read it again. <laughs> Good old Darrell Breen. Um, and he's right. There, in inherently, challenge and difficulty is a barrier to entry um, for many different reasons. It could be a barrier to entry for uh, the fact that you're just not as good with games. It could be a barrier of entry because you don't have the physical capabilities to to move your hands and eyes in coordination quite effectively to, to do the natural loop. Uh, I know 
certainly games that offer turn-based systems and games that don't have Twitch gameplay at all are definitely favoured more in the sort of disabled gamers community because they can take their time, uh, there's no special controller mapping they have to work out, there's no special timing that has to be worked out. But those games, often JRPGs and such, are kind of caught in objective difficulty. They their loop is game knowledge and game exploitation so they ramp up the difficulty through high damage and high things so you just have to use every exploit you can possibly think of meaning that we don't have a game that has that level of subjective difficulty while still remaining friendly and open to a potentially disabled uh, game player or do we that's a good question. I guess, like I said, turn-based games always are going to have a bit more difficulty finding a subjective loop. Subjectiveness kind of relies on a sort of almost physical knowledge of the manipulating the, the objects within the game world using the controller, just being able to physically input commands like that. So how could we, theoretically then, reward game knowledge without having to make the player resort to things like exploits and other such kind of information to uh, to try and increase a game's challenge and difficulty whilst not increasing the physical necessity of having to play the game with a controller basically increasing difficulty through knowledge alone rather than muscle memory which subjective gameplay is more reliant on. I guess my sort of two cents into this would be that you would have to develop a game in which the difficulty settings vastly alter the game's world and challenges within it. You could probably still remain a core loop but there would be different parts of the story hidden behind these these difficulty levels and they all can interconnect within the same one so if you beat like a certain character's story and beat the game that way you could go up a difficulty level and see it from a different character's point of view who has got different skills but it's still the same game knowledge that you can use and exploit but it, it you have to think about it differently and make it more challenging working out well okay i can't go to this area now because my weapons are all water type and they're all ice type and they'll just thrash me so where can i go first and instead to make it easier on myself okay i go here but it's still going to be difficult but if i beat them then i can do that and so on recontextualize the gaming world itself while keeping the, the the sort of core knowledge of the player intact and um and generally just keeping what they've learned and developed the skills they've developed useful whilst also challenging them to to think about those mechanics differently in order to increase the challenge of the game now you could do this without changing the story or even going into different character arcs because otherwise again you've got the Dar O'Brien problem of bam sorry you're not good enough to play this but you don't get to see this character's story um, and all this sort of stuff and here's the other and this is sort of the the bell and hoop at the end of this lovely waxing poetical about uh, difficulty is that the idea of the content being hidden because a game is too difficult doesn't really exist anymore. 
no content is hidden anymore because we can watch it. We can watch it streamed, we can watch it recorded, we can get edits of it, walkthroughs, tutorials, we can see the game's files, we can go behind the scenes and travel through the maps and see how the devs put the game together. A lot of the time you could probably even get the source code for 99.9% .9 of old games and just remake them as you wish. You can mod the game, you can change the game. A game is not this pretty package anymore. It's not the fluttering heart in the box, but instead it is just this it's up to you. You have this sort of command of it. You can sort of unpick it. And though beware, I will say that like like a, a decent pair of underwear, once it is unpicked, it is very hard to sew back together in a satisfying way than when you first put them on. I don't know why I picked underwear there. I think it's because my last pair of jocks has fallen apart. Not my last last, but the previous one I was wearing. Um, and so yeah. Difficulty in games. I came across this topic, or rather it came back into my mind because uh, I recently picked up Persona 5 again and I'd been playing through on normal difficulty and I'd gotten to a point where I was just getting absolutely railed by the RNG, the random number generator in the game, where I'd come across an enemy called Anubis. He would use uh, Mudun on me, which is this death magic. And it has like a low or medium percent chance of insta-killing a party member. Which is fine as long as he doesn't choose Joker, which is the main character. And if the main character dies, you get game over. And he chose Joker. And he would he would do it and it would go off and he'd die. And he'd do it and he'd go off and he'd die constantly. And I'm trying to just get to the boss of that particular stage. And I'm just like, this is stressful. This is so annoying. And... I left the game for months and months because of it, because I was just getting so wound up with these mechanics, these things they would get off, or like some of the clunkier aspects of the controls as well, which unfortunately can't really be helped. Um, but then I came back to it, just resolved I wanted to see the story, because I was really invested in the story and the characters. I really liked the world, I liked the gameplay loop, I loved the day-to-day life sim in between the actual like dungeon crawling because that is the best bit <laughs> making those decisions and it it feeling so natural and tied in with the world especially a world that i can recognize around me oh beautiful it's utterly utterly incredible and really good fun um so i really wanted to go back to it so i i resolved myself to go back to persona 5 and turn the difficulty down to easy now there is interestingly in persona a difficulty below easy but it, it kind of scared me when I clicked on it because it's like the minute you change it to this you can never go back to any other difficulty for this entire save which I thought was insane and basically what I think it is it just makes every combat a complete cakewalk you are like always you're guaranteed to win uh, you can't game over I think is the big thing you always like You'll keep fighting and stuff, but even if you die, you, you some bullshit will happen and you'll come back to life. And it's the, basically the uber-accessible option for people who really just want to see the story. And it's a story game at heart. I think that's a very interesting decision. But I didn't choose it. I chose easy. I like the combat, but I don't like it to be as bullshit as it is sometimes. 
and I guess the now the big chunk of the verbal diarrhea essay that was on difficulty there has come to an end. It is worth mentioning there is a very strange little stigma about playing a game on easy. I will always play a game on normal first time for the aforementioned I think generally that's what the people who make games intend the game's difficulty to be. I tend to default to normal but as a kid I'd always go to easy because I was terrified of getting stuck on a game, not playing it for ages, coming back to it and not having the skills anymore to continue and having to start again. Which was the feedback loop in a lot of old games. You, especially I remember I had a Metal Gear Solid save that I didn't know where I was or what I was supposed to be doing and therefore it just got stuck there for years and then I had to start the whole game again. Uh, Final Fantasy 7, I had a stage where I couldn't beat Rufus because I'd constantly been running away from battles because I loathe turn-based combat or did when I was a kid, especially Final Fantasy 7s, which is frighteningly dull. Fight me in the comments. It's boring. Um, especially compared to Persona 5, which is fantastic. Uh, but admittedly, like, alright, Daniel, come on, lay off. You're literally comparing a game that came out like last year to a game that came out in the fucking early noughties. Jesus, man. But yeah, um, it turn-based combat's come far, is what I'm saying. And I didn't enjoy it, and now I do, because it's better. But yeah, I all these kind of failed saves always had me afraid of, of trying a harder difficulty. That was until I got so into playing Halo 1 with my friend. We'd play every weekend, and we played Halo 2, and that came out every weekend, and, and a bit of Halo 3, I think, as well. I used to stay at his house, or he would stay at mine, vice versa, and we'd just play it non-stop. And because of this, we got um, really good at Halo and Halo 2. And we could go up. And we found that the heroic was the difficulty that was just felt the best. And the weird thing is, in later versions of the game, the developers say that heroic is the intended experience and normal isn't. Which is very interesting. But Halo is a mainstream game. So they have to think about a different audience when they set the categories for their difficulty sliders which is even more interesting if i have a niche game that i know is only for really hardcore like fantasy rpg players you know i can kind of tell them that normal is going to be difficult hard is going to be impossible and easy is going to be you know just a little bit easier than that that that's kind of expected but if i'm going to the general public who are, are going to be playing you know call of duty halo maybe a bit of fifa and not much else in terms of game scope, just these few games. They're not exactly as game literate. Then I have to really think about what kind of difficulty my normal mode is at. Speaking of thinking about games, I've been making games. Or, to be more precise, one game. I mentioned uh, earlier in my little rant just then that you can get like source codes and stuff for games and basically play around with the very guts and intestines and create your own Frankenstein monster to play with in your back garden. But I've recently got the free trial for Game Maker Studio 2. Um, and I'm, I've, I've been kind of blown away by it. I followed an, a tutorial on YouTube, one of the official ones. To make the game Asteroids, basically. It calls it Space Rocks in the game, but we all know what Asteroids is. At least I hope so. And 
I chose to use uh, GML or Game Maker language, which is its own coding language. Um, but it does have a very, very interesting option called D&D, haha, which is drag and drop. Which instead of typing out the lines of code with your curly brackets and your close brackets, open brackets, blah, blah, blah. You can instead drag the effects that you want and link them together in a way that basically visualizes the code you're using. And they make it expressly clear in the tutorial, because you can choose which tutorial you want, whether you want the the Game Maker language tutorial or the, the drag and drop, that anything you can do with the language, you can do with the uh, drag and drop. Just the language, you can do things just a little bit more precisely. But the beauty of the drag and drop is you can drag and drop the code down and then immediately convert it into the GML, play with the settings, convert it back. So you can always have a visual representation if you want of the coding that you're using. But anyway, I went to learn GML. And I'm pleased to say that finally a penny fucking dropped in my head. I learned Python uh, a couple of years back because I got a really cheap um, bundle of educational software and one of them was like a huge course on learning Python. And I always have the same problem when I've come to learn code is uh, people who know code and who are teaching code have a tendency to skip over the why of what they're doing a lot and they'll just say, and then this is done like this. Type it, type it, type, click, click, and that'll do that. Okay, moving on. I want to know, like, what does that word mean? Why does that need that? Why is there a closed bracket there? Why is there an open bracket there? What's the curly bracket do? I need to know all this shit, like, on a baby toddler level. Now, this tutorial started out like that, uh, but it just quickly kind of, she got faster and faster and faster, and I had to slow it down myself and work out, like, what exactly was going on. Luckily, there is a robust, like, kit going on uh, within the game itself, like a kit, uh, what's the word, like, book, a guide, a manual, in which you can check any terms and figure out, like, how it works. But basically, everything just comes to, if this, then that. Uh, and even has an if command uh, and all this other stuff and it's got an in-game sprite editor so you can just draw your sprites in-game you can even animate in-game you can you can animate while drawing the sprite which is a strange and unusual tool I've never seen before um, you can import sprite sheets and as long as you label them correctly they'll be separated into sprite sheets so if you've got a sprite sheet you can essentially make you could just have the animations pre-baked in. You don't have to worry about putting each individual, cutting them up and putting them in uh, as individual frames. Um, it comes, obviously, if you go to like place like itch.io, you can get tons of resources for this sort of thing. It's generally, the interface is very intuitive. Rooms, section, everything. It, it's, it's a cool bit of software and I'm very impressed. It's kind of the software I've been wanting for a long, 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 long time. Now, I know purists amongst us will start saying, well, Daniel, you could be spending this time learning C-sharp and actually learning something like Unity or blah, blah, blah. But baby, I need, I, need, I need baby steps, boys and girls. I don't have a lot of free time. I don't have a lot of mental energy as much. I've got a little puppy dog to look after. I've got a wife to look after. I've got a house 
to look after and a job to look after and many other sort of these mental commitments pulling me in all directions. I have a need for creative outlet that I have to fulfill, but at the same time, that need pulls me in so many different directions. Finding those moments where I can sit down and try and master something, I need the shortcuts that something like that offers me. I, I do not have the youthful free time to just master an entire coding system and be able to generate a game through it. Or even something like Unity in which my computer is strong, but I still don't think it has the power to be running Unity at the speed of which I would like to be able to create a game with it. And also, I can draw sprites. That's no problem. I can make a game, draw sprites, and I can, I can work out things this way. So hopefully, ladies and germs, we'll get our first game out there. I'll make us a little tiny game, something fun you can run around in while you listen to this podcast. How about that? How about a little virtual bar? A little virtual version of the VIP backroom lounge, or the backroom VIP lounge, depending on if you listen to me on twitch.tv. Okay, before we move on to the last section, uh, I'd like to thank everyone who did join me on the Twitch stream. I'm hopefully wanting to make a habit of, of streaming some indie games every week on Twitch. I'm thinking Saturday evenings are probably going to be the best for me. Um, around about 8 o'clock Japan Standard Time, which is about midday uh, UK time, and I'm not sure US time. And basically, yeah, come along, hang out. Last night we played The Sexy Brutal. A time-twisting murder mystery game which aesthetically is gorgeous and possibly has one of the best soundtracks of any indie title I've ever heard. Um, if you want to see the whole stream, it's, it's still up. You can go and watch the whole video in real time if you really like to. Um, if you guys are interested in me chopping down and editing the streams and maybe putting them on a YouTube channel or something like that, let me know. That's something I can definitely do, but I want to know that someone's going to watch it. Simple as. Just that little reassurance so that... Because there's a lot of time invested into editing video, as I'm sure most of you know. Um, other than that, Sexy Brutal will probably be uh, a GUI episode in the future with uh, our good friend of the podcast, Connor Kuma. He'll be coming on and we'll both be talking about it. He, in fact, was the uh, inspiration to buy the game in the first place. Uh, that and I've been meaning to get it. Also, folks, if you like this podcast and you want to help me out in some way, please consider sharing it with a friend who has similar interests to you. If you like games, if you like talking about games, uh, even now if you like talking about game development, game design, any of these little topics, drinking even, just give them a link to this. Let them have a listen. Welcome them into the Backroom VIP Lounge, eh? That'd be very nice, and I'd appreciate it. If you can rate this on iTunes or Spotify, follow on Spotify, that'd be grand too. Always helps us out. Old blessed algorithm, I do light a candle unto thee that my light can be shone upon the ears of all those who are near me. And such is my prayer. <laughs> Alright, on with the last thing I want to talk about today. Basically, um... I've been kickstarting games. Not video games, however. Uh, interestingly, I've been kickstarting a number of games. And the, fun 
The funny thing about Kickstarter is I, I went to see what I'd kickstarted because, uh, well, I'm, I'm a forgetful Nancy, uh, to put it simply. I've got, I've got a Swiss cheese brain and any, any kind of information goes in, comes out the other end sometimes. Um, and I found out I'd, I'd kickstarted so many games while I was drunk. <laughs> Completely by accident. Right? <laughs> and some while I wasn't drunk. So I'm going to go through a couple of the, the projects I've backed and to see if you would be interested in backing them. Or, or you'd be interested in keeping your eyes out for them because I think just about all of them are going to get a proper release in the future soon. And if you're not part of this kind of community, then you might not have even heard of some of these things that are coming out. Okay, so the first one is called Overarms. It's a role-playing game, uh, pen and paper. And basically, I've been looking for this kind of game for a while now. It's, it's goal, the goal of the game is a closed system game. Closed system means it's got a specific genre or type in mind, whereas an open system is generic RPGs or like D&D. D&D is like open fantasy. It's not like, oh, it's a Game of Thrones fantasy. No, it, you can play it. Technically, you could play anything in it. It's very generic, whereas this is a closed system. And the closed microcosm is... Um, I don't... There isn't really a good name for the genre yet. It's basically... People who have beings they control. Not Pokemon, but more like JoJo's Bizarre Adventure and Persona. Right? They have these, like creatures these beings that give them extraordinary power uh and that they can fight with and that is just that's the setting it's called overarms they call them anima in the actual setting because you know copyright and all that they can't call them stands or personas but that is it even says in the book they're the direct inspiration for it and so it's got a closed system based on using this now the system itself is pretty basic but the reason i backed it other than you know it's a fairly interesting premise i could run a you know, a Persona one-shot. That could be quite fun. But also, the um, my wife has been wanting to run a tabletop roleplay version of a Magical Girl game. She is a huge, huge Sailor Moon fan. Right? Lifelong Sailor Moon fan. Adores it. So you would love to run a Sailor Moon-esque Magical Girl RPG. And we... I've been looking into options for her for so long now. We looked at uh, a couple of the, the generic open games like Fate would be quite good. But for Fate to work, Chris would really have to learn quite a lot of stuff about the Fate system and how it comes together and how uh, how all the tagging and stuff works, which to a brand new DM could be a little bit tricky in my opinion. I think once you get it, the sky's the limit with fate. It really is. It's a beautiful system. Wonderful. But I think for your first off into the foray, you need something that is a little more closed. But also, because of how many magical girl types they can be and the powers they can have, you're going to have to have something that's open and descriptive. There's no list of powers that can cover the the length and breadth of magical girl bullshittery that they pull out their asses. 
you know, shields of magical light at the perfect time, heart-changing lasers and whatever. I'm probably spewing a load of shit. I've never watched Sailor Moon. <laughs> I've seen Madoka Magica, though, so, you know, I'm halfway there. And all this other nonsense, right? So that's what we're looking for. So I figured the easiest way would be to get this game. And obviously, I'm going to support the creators that they made a cool game. I've got their quick start, so I know what the game is and how it works. I could just run it from the quick start. Nothing stopping me, but hey, support your indie developers, especially tabletop indie, because that is a niche market. Surprisingly cruel as well. There's some real assholes in the tabletop publishing community, but there are also some absolute angels. Um, so I bought it. We're getting it, believe it or not, October. Basically, the game was finished, and they just needed money to print the game. They wanted hard covers, full color, you know, all that jazz. So we're actually getting the game in October, the full one, but we can start making characters now. So that's Overarms if you're interested in that sort of stuff. Orbital, a space station RPG zine. Now, this is one I ordered drunk. <laughs> this one, just, I love this style of RPG, right? Because instead of playing a single character, again, this is a closed RPG. You play on a, a massive space station. Um, and, yeah. I, I don't even, like, know 100%. Like, cause I, like, cause I found this while I was drunk. But at the same time, it, you... I like the idea that you play multiple different characters rather than just one. Which means characters can die and get into trouble and all this other stuff. And, um... And I just love the idea of trying to maintain a space station together with my friends. Oh, and it's also GM-less. Meaning that I don't have to be the forever GM. I can make some characters and come and play as well. And other people can have a go at contributing to the story. And that always is nice. Uh, being forever GM is hard as nails. I've literally... I've, I've Now I've complained about this in the past. Especially in the D&D episode. But like... Um, You've got to imagine, right, I've GM'd so many games now, so many systems, so many different player types, so many stories. I also went to university to study stories and storytelling. At university, I specialized in uh, contributive storytelling or selective storytelling, which people can change the story and narrative not as a passive audience, but as an active audience. Essentially role-playing, but with a big group of people. And played with the idea of the, the interactive novel and all this other stuff. That was my speciality. So when I've done all this for years and years and years and years and years, and then I have someone who's like, Oh, yeah, I'll run a game. I've, I've only ever run one game before, or worse. Oh, yeah, I've never run a game before. I'll give it a bash. You could be a player in that. I'll be a player. And I love making my character, I'll do everything. But I know for a fact, playing that game will make me want to GM a game. Because I'll be... I would never nitpick to the person's face. And I will only provide feedback when asked. I'll make that abundantly clear. Unless they're being like an absolute asshole or breaking some like cardinal sin. You know. Um, but like, I've sat in games and I've been like, Okay, why are they doing it like this? Oh my god, 
what is happening? Oh my god. Or nothing is happening. This is so boring. Nothing is happening. I want to do this. I want to do this. I want to do that. And I don't forget that. And then the next game I run, I basically run the opposite of the game I was in. This is the plight of the forever GM. GMing makes me want to play games. Playing makes me want to GM. It's a bitter, bitter cycle that I'm happily trapped in for the rest of my life. The third game that I backed estimated oh the orbital is coming out february 2021 next one's called die of the dead a board game haha -ha. die meaning dice and it's a day of the dead themed dice game honestly i don't know why i backed it it looks fantastic like it is gorgeous it's got these beautiful custom dice in many different colors. It's got these little incredibly decorative Day of the Dead coffins and these steps that you can roll the dice down, I presume. Oh no, the dice go on them. I have no idea about the game. It's just gorgeous. And I know for a fact that given that I play board games a lot with uh, people who don't play board games, they're not board gamers necessarily, that I will be able to get this off the shelf on its aesthetic alone. A little bit like I can do with Azul. Scythe for certain crowds. You can usually get people playing that. Based on its aesthetic alone. And then there's games I actually want to play. That I haven't played yet. Like El Grande. Which is uh, just still on my shelf. In fairness to the people I play with. El Grande is an old Euro game. That is in German. <laughs> So it takes a specific kind of madman to try and muscle through the German just to play an incredibly complicated European low interaction high stakes game. <laughs> Alright, next on my Kickstarter and why you should be interested is Twilight 2000 role playing in the World War 3 that never was. I've recently joined a Twilight 2000 uh, Facebook group because this game has been popular since the 80s. It's an it's one of the old role-playing games. And it's one that appeals to people who are huge military history buffs. It's got like disgustingly realistic combat that can leave characters like ill from bullet wounds, can insta-kill with bullets. It has incredible detail on all its weaponry and all this stuff. And it's always, each edition adds something new and strange. And this particular edition looks very, very interesting. The combat in the game, as you can imagine, is so detailed that it comes with combat maps that specify specific areas to fight in. And whereas the role-playing itself is, is just a fascinating game. I couldn't resist. Uh, I may have pledged a little bit too much money. Oh no, that's in... That's in that's in foreign currency. S-E-K? Corona? Corona? Rona? Fucking hell, Corona. Leave me alone, Corona. But, yeah, I've got a box set of that coming in June 2021. Uh, then I got a new version of um, Quest and Avalon, which basically, if you don't know, is um, The Resistance, which is that little game of betrayal but it's one set in Arthurian times and adds a few extra new rules and is basically just the best version of the resistance uh so it yeah i've been meaning to pick up avalon for a while but i figured this new edition fuck it i'll pick it up and this one also comes with a game called quest as well which i don't know much about another drunk purchase tiny epic pirates 
It's a tiny little pirate game that fits in your pocket and has tiny little pirate ships and tiny little cubes you can sail around on and tiny little pirate minifigs that you can put on tiny little pirate islands. It's adorable. It's amazing. I can't wait to get it in March 2021. And then the last one, which is one I got recently, Fiasco. Uh, and I can say now, the new edition of Fiasco is fantastic. It is utterly, utterly perfect. And I mean that in every way. And I cannot wait to buy more of its setting packs and all this other stuff. Because we play Tales of Suburbia. Now, what my biggest sort of... I didn't even know it was a gripe until I played the newer version. But setup in the old fiasco took so long. It was so kind of fiddly with the dice. And people just had so little options compared to this version. Everyone just gets dealt a hand of cards that have needs and relationships and locations and items and you just play them. You could play a relationship between any characters. You just be alright, you two are cousin and brother. Work out which one's which. Okay. And as long as everyone keeps an open mind, it doesn't matter. GM-less role-playing as well. Card-driven. Super fast. The tilt just goes like that and it's over and you're moving on to the next set of scenes. And then the, the, the finale is the same. You figure out your ending and bam, you're finished. The game still plays at role-played length, you know, like three, four hours. But at the same time, it's just pure wonderful. It could probably play longer. It depends how theatrical you get. I, I tend, I've played it mainly with... Well, the last time I played this version was with three theatre people, myself included. So it, it was very much into our melodrama and acting and twists and turns and... All kinds of madness happened. But that's the beauty of Fiasco. It just happens naturally. And yeah, and that's Kickstarter. I thought I'd, I'd sort of update you in case any of those took your interest. Keep your eyes peeled for them in the future. Um, Kickstarter, obviously, you know, pre, pre-warning. pre Don't be dragged in, especially with board games, by beautiful miniatures and sexy-looking skulls on cardboard coffins and nice dice. Like a fool would. Uh, instead, you know, check is there a good game mechanics there. If it's a roleplay game, check if they've got a quick start or a previous edition that you can really figure out if that's for you. Buying games is just about being a smart consumer and support what you want to see more of. Um, and just never steal games. Simple as that. If I, if I like a, a tabletop RPG is out of print, fair play. Alright, don't. You don't have to spend hundreds of pounds to get a collect. what's essentially just a collector's item. Get things that are going to sit on the table as a physical book or be a PDF. Um, but always buy them. If you can, of course. Alright, folks. Uh, that's last orders. So, I'm going to leave you here. Have a lovely rest of the week. I've got another day off tomorrow. I'm very much looking forward to being hungover. Um, take care of yourselves. It's a it's it's getting a bit crazy again out there. So you know, wash your hands, check in with loved ones, wear a mask when you go outside, all that good stuff. Remember, kindness and forgiveness is an act of compassion. It cannot be earned. It can only be given. Love you all very much. And hopefully I'll see you on stream next Saturday. Remember, 8 p.m. twitch.tv forward slash the backroom VIP lounge. Take care. Mwah.